0: My name is Chandler Malone, and welcome to the latest episode of Be Atento. Helpful tips and stories from some of today's most successful entrepreneurs and investors. Be Atento is brought to you by Atento Capital, a Tulsa-based venture fund focused on driving returns through early-stage venture investment and local economic development and job creation. Atento is Spanish for helpful, careful, thoughtful, conscientious, and polite, as we look to embody these characteristics to all of our stakeholders. Today, we are excited to welcome Erica Lucas, of Stitch Crew to the podcast. Hey, Erica, how are you?
1: Hey, good. How are you guys?
0: Yeah, how's how's life been, I guess since we since we last saw each other?
1: Um, it's been, you know, um a little crazy as you can imagine, but good.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Are you thinking that, you know, you're going to maybe move things to kind of more virtual just going forward? And kind of change the way that that Stitch Crew operates as a result of this? Or do you think when, you know, when things get back to normal, you guys will continue to operate normally?
1: Oh, no, we um, we've already, you know, we've intentionally built the program to where we could do it remotely just because we also work with companies that are not necessarily based in the state. So... So, um, we've already moved all of our office hours, mentor madness, uh, events, mentor meetings. Everything is now done remotely, virtually. The only thing we're kind of holding off to making a final decision as we learn from our peer accelerators is, um, regarding demo day. So we're still, you know, there's some, some of our peers are doing live streams. Others are doing pre-recorded videos. So we're still debating as to what the best route will be for us uh, for Demo Day.
0: And so, you know, just to kind of give everyone who's listening to the podcast a little bit of an overview um, of you uh, and of Stitch Crew, could you give us a background of, of who you are and uh, what Stitch Crew does?
1: Yeah, sure. So we, in partnership with our local NBA team, which is the Oklahoma City Thunder, we run an accelerator program out of Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, really. We help 20 entrepreneurs a year. Um, We do that in cohorts. So we do two cohorts a year, one in the spring, one in the fall, up to 10 companies per cohort. And we basically work with them for 12 weeks to get them in the best possible shape that we can to either grow through revenue or go after funding. And then at the end of those twelve weeks, we introduce them to investors and in the larger community through uh, what we call demo day.
0: And you know, with just the publications that you know we see and we read uh, when we look into tech and when we look into entrepreneurship, a lot of times there's a lot of emphasis on the entrepreneurs and a lot of emphasis on you know the fundraising. Uh, but not necessarily as much on some of these you know, entrepreneurial support organizations that are providing some of that key education. Could you speak to you know, just the importance of that component of the ecosystem? Oh,
1: for sure. Well, for once, you know, we, we don't consider ourselves like an educational program just because we also don't believe that there's a clear blueprint of how to build a business. <laughs> it depends on the business model that you're using, how you want to build your company, and there's just so many variables. But we do want to help them, um, as you know, navigate the system as they, as they launch companies. Um, and I will say that you're absolutely right. I think that, um, often people, I don't know if it's just the perception that venture capital is sexy or fundraising is sexy or what, but they tend to focus on that, um, and not really think about the fundamentals of building businesses and having, you know, a good solid, um, foundation uh, to build the businesses and then go after fundraising. So I do think that a lot of the programs are incredibly crucial and needed um, as entrepreneurs take off uh, just to provide more than anything networks and a- access to resources and mentors as they, um, especially if they're first time entrepreneurs.
0: What made you decide to, to start Stitch Crew in the first place?
1: So we really started as a frustration because we felt like, There's incredible programs already in the state um, doing great work, Um, but we felt there wasn't really an independent program that was um, exclusively focused on high growth entrepreneurs. So it was really out of frustration that tried to talk to a a few key stakeholders in the state to see if they would do something. And everybody was super excited about it, but nobody would really launch anything, (laughs) So luckily, around the same time we were having those conversations, we started talking to the Oklahoma City Thunder, and they actually talked to us about doing something about, you know, what, what can we do and how can we support? And they actually pitched us about the opportunity to partner to launch an accelerator program. Um, but it really just grew out of frustration that we felt like there was a huge gap in the market uh, providing those resources to high growth entrepreneurs.
0: So when you're looking at companies uh, to bring into you know each st- cohort of Stitch Crew, what types of things are you looking for from the founders?
1: So we are industry agnostic. So really, we, we don't look at the industry or we, we really look at the strength of the team that we're onboarding. So because that's often all we have to go through, right? Um, it's the ideas are There's a lot of ideas out there, but it's really, it comes down to the execution and to execute, you need a really strong team. So that's really what we look for. We look for founders who are all in, who understand the problem incredibly well to a point that they almost obsess about it. (laughs) Um, We look for founders that complement each other. So if you're a solo entrepreneur, that's okay too. We've worked with solo entrepreneurs that start out just with one person. But ideally, we like to see more than one person working on the problem. And the reason why that is, is we also like to see teams that complement each other on skills. So like you might be really great at building the product, but then do you can you sell it? Or do you have somebody in your team that can sell it? Um, do you have somebody in your team that it's comfortable fundraising. And so we look for those key attributes in the teams, but it comes down to just the strength of the people that make up that team.
0: That makes a ton of sense. And, and I'd say, you know, when we're looking at founders, I think, you know, we're looking at, you know, a lot of those same traits, you know, in terms of traits and characteristics of some of the most successful uh, founders and teams that you've had uh, come through the program, would you identify any common characteristics at all?
1: Well, for starters, it's that passion to solve the problem. So they've e- either experienced the problem themselves and or somebody that they love or care about. it's it has a pain point <laughs> with, with that problem. So they are adamant about finding solutions that are not just two times better than what's already in the market, if there's something already in the market, but that really will make a crucial shift or or it's it's really additive so we look for those founders that are just super passionate about solving the problem and then i would say the other attribute is that they're all in you know this is um they're really just committed to making it work and they don't mind putting in the extra time and the extra hours and they know the odds <laughs> of startups but they're willing to take those risks because again they're all in and they believe that they can solve that problem that they're so passionate about
0: In terms of, you know, maybe misconceptions that uh, founders come in to the program with, would you say that there are any that are kind of common that you might like to just, you know, speak about for a larger audience?
1: Oh, yeah, 100%. So one of the biggest misconceptions, and we actually tell founders even before they apply, that if you think you're going to come through a program and by the end of the program have a full round funded, (laughs) that it's that's just not how it works we believe although we we work with a lot of investors that are ready to deploy capital really the process of fundraising and and building a venture backed company has to do a lot with relationships and building those relationships takes trust and you have to build them so it takes time so, as well so we say that fundraising you know we we have had some founders who come in thinking that they're gonna meet a lot of investors and by the time demo day comes, they're gonna close around of funding. So I would say that's one misconception. The other one is that that we have that Chris and I have all and Gabby have all the answers. And we don't. I mean, we surround ourselves with really smarter people than, than we are and we have an incredible mentor network, you included and, and other investors and founders themselves. Who come in and help as much as, as they need. But really, ultimately, too, what we tell founders is it's up to you. So what you put into the program, you will get out of the program. We'll try our hardest to um, help identify all the ways in which you can potentially win. But at the end of the day, they have to execute, right? They have to pull through and they have to um, get their company going. We can't want it more than they do. So I would say those two are the main uh, misconceptions that we get.
0: And so you know kind of going forward, one of the questions that uh, I think I've been getting from a decent number of entrepreneurs is understanding you know how to go from you know product to revenue And so do you have you know any advice uh, any general advice for entrepreneurs that are looking to uh, really connect with potential customers to close sales?
1: Yeah, so it, it's it really depends on the business model that they're that they're diving into right because if you're a direct to consumer, then we're talking a different acquisition strategy and and how you talk how you even talk to users um, to do that. If you're a business to business model or an enterprise model where your sales cycles are completely different and maybe you're going to have to have a high touch points, but it, it's going to take a, lo- a, a longer lead way to close those deals. It just depends. That's why we all, we always say that there's no no such a thing as a clear blueprint because it depends on what you're building. It depends on the ultimate user that you're trying to acquire. So there, there's a lot of variables there. At the end of the day, though, what we will say is that you have to talk to the people that you're actually solving the problem for and they'll guide you if you really are there. And and when I say talk, I mean, maybe what we mean is listen. <laughs> you have to listen to those people and really figure out how you Are really being additive if you're really being additive, and don't fall in love with your product because sometimes, you know, what you're building may not be the right solution. That's it goes back to you know our deal that if you're really obsessed about the problem, and about the customer, the solution really doesn't matter because you'll be able to adapt it to get to the point where you do produce revenue because you obsess so much about really finding the right solution for the customer based on their feedback, that ultimately, if you listen to them, if you apply their feedback to it, um, and even their pricing feedback to it, then you could potentially reach revenue. But you can't fall in love with your product. And you have to be willing to talk to those users and be willing to iterate as needed.
0: On the iteration piece, another thing that I've been talking to founders about is, you know, just kind of helping them uh, develop what that initial product should be. Um, Could you speak to the importance of not overbuilding, um, you know, in the initial stages and, you know, understanding that it is an iterative process?
1: Oh, 100%. Yeah. So um, we hate startup jargon as much as the next person. (laughs) But, you know, when we talk about the early product or the MVP, the minimal viable product is really just getting something super basic, don't overthink it. Because it goes back to you can end up building and spending a lot of money or a lot of your time building something thinking in your head that you have to get it to perfection. And so you're going to continue to put in a lot of hours before you show it to people before you show it to the user. Um, And by the time you show it to the user, and they give you their feedback, you realize that they don't even like it, or it's not solving the problem that you originally thought. And so that's why we always say, you know, build the most basic version of your product. Don't worry about it being perfect and start talking to people, start showing people, start getting their feedback. And then with that feedback, apply it as you continue to develop the product. Um, That way you make sure a couple of things, you make sure that you're not spending dollars where you don't need to be spending dollars in if you're having somebody else build it. If you're building it, you're not spending your time building features that nobody cares about, right? So so yeah, I mean, what is that saying? I can't remember who said it, that you're always going to be embarrassed of the first version of your product. And that is super true. Just get something out there, learn as you go and start talking to people. Of course, there's there's yep. different products. If you're building uh, deep tech or something for, you know, that's heavily regulated, that's going to require approvals like the FDA or, or whatever, then obviously that doesn't really apply to you. <laughs> but uh, for the most part, it does for almost everyone else.
0: Also, there are so many non-technical founders out there mm-hmm. who are trying to understand how they can get product built uh, most efficiently, what are your thoughts on you know working with you know an outsourced uh, technical development shop uh, versus you know working with uh, a technical co-founder? And would you say that you know one is more beneficial than the other?
1: No, I, I wouldn't say that because I mean you know we all have different. Um, Assets and 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 ways in which we can contribute to building a company, but that's why it's so important that maybe if you really are trying to build a high growth, that you consider bringing in co-founders that complement you. So we've seen founders who are not technical in nature that need that technical ability. What we'll say though, because what we see if if you're a non-technical founder, what we've seen in the past is that they go raise funding to pay a large software development company to build them something. That at at enterprise cost, does that make sense? <laughs> so like you see, without yes. even showing it to customers or without even knowing if it's something that customers are actually want. Um, so they end up spending so much money building something because they don't have the talent within. And they just think that because they're hiring a, a great software development company, and they're going to build a beautiful product that that's all they need. And that's not necessarily the case. So in the early stages of your company, you know, we realize that you're not going to have the money to pay somebody to bring them on, certainly not at, at market rates, just because you're a startup. But you can perhaps find a co founder that complements you um, that that she or he can be the technical person that, that builds a product. And you can be the one talking to users, both of you, everybody needs to be talking to users. But but you know what I'm saying, you can compliment and uh, vice versa. If you are the technical founder who knows how to code, who knows how to build, it's great at it. That's great. You also have to get out there and talk to users. And if you're not comfortable doing that, figure out, Uh, how to bring a co-founder that is willing to help you sell it and, and get it in front of users.
0: I guess next question is uh, just in terms of trends. uh, Are there things that you are seeing across any industry that have, you know, kind of piqued your interest and, you know, made you think that, Oh, maybe things are moving in a particular direction. Oh for
1: sure. I mean, I I think we need to come up with another terminology now, but future of work has been something that, um, Given my background in economic development and 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 you know how how do we build the workforce of the future? I've always been intrigued in in the future work, which I don't necessarily think is too too future anymore because <laughs> it's already here. We're already seeing it with the situation, right? Working remotes, the tools that people need to work remotely, um, the the resources, um, all of that. I think it's come into fruition. I mean, there's always, of course. Other big trends and in, in markets, trends that everybody talks about with artificial intelligence and, and, and all of that stuff. But the one that I know for sure all of us three would agree with, Chris, Gabby, and I, would be future of work.
0: I wholeheartedly agree with that one as well. And I, yeah, I think this. Unfortunate situation for everyone has definitely accelerated uh, that so much more quickly than we ever could have expected. Yeah. I guess, you know, following up, uh, is there anything that you think is important for aspiring entrepreneurs who are kind of on the fence uh, as to whether or not they should start their company, uh, should know, or should consider before they take that leap?
1: Sure. So, I mean, really think about why you want to build a company in the first place because it's going to be, I know it sounds cliche, but it's so true. I mean, it's going to be super hard. There's going to be days where you're going to question, why in the hell did I even <laughs> start a company? That's not an if. Um, that's a, that is a that that is going to happen um, in the course of building a company. And by the way, it doesn't go away even after you go through the startup phase. So you really have to be passionate about what you're doing and the problem that you're solving. And you know, for aspiring entrepreneurs, I, you know, we always talk about there. There are three components to to really launching a company, and and those are: you have to have a problem, you have to believe that you have a solution for the for the problem, not just a solution that's one times better or two times better, but really is exponentially better than than it's out there in the market. And then you have to also believe that you can build it. Are you really the, the person that can take it to market, that can grow it, that can scale it? And in order to do the third one, you know, you have to have two belief systems. One is, can you build what it is that you're saying you're going to build? And two, can you sell it? And if you have those two belief systems and you understand the three components that make up the launching of the company, then I would say, and, and, and you're confident about them, then I would say, go for it, launch it. There's never going to be a perfect time. There's never going to be enough money for you to launch it. There's always going to be rocky, you know, and, and by the way, you know, I just, we just did another podcast recently and people were asking us if people should launch companies in this uncertain time. And we reminded them that some of the best companies that we know were started under a recession, right? Under uncertain times. And whether you look at Apple or Disney or Microsoft. So yeah, you can still build a company for as long as you're solving a problem, not just one time better, two times better, but exponentially. And you're so passionate about it that you're going to figure out a way to build it despite COVID-19, despite the challenges that you're going to have to face.
0: You've mentioned, and so rightfully so, a number of challenges that entrepreneurs face. Do you have any uh, advice for Helping entrepreneurs just kind of, you know, dig deep inside of themselves and, you know, overcome uh, a lot of those challenges as they're working to build their companies? Oh, for sure.
1: I mean, you know, the number one rule that we say for entrepreneurs, regardless of what stage there are, or even if they're aspiring, you have to get out of your head and you have to, again, believe that you can do it knowing that there are some times that you're just going to question everything because it's that, you know, the life of the entrepreneur, it it doesn't go away. But you need to remind yourself of that. And you need to really believe in the best version of yourself, believe that you can build it and get out of your head because it is a mental, it takes a mental toll on you. There are times when Chris and I look at each other and we're like, What the hell are we doing again? (laughs) You know, it it just even after years of doing and, and and we've done that in previous companies that we've owned as well. So it really you you need to understand that it is emotionally challenging to build a company. And so you have to believe in yourself. You have to get out of your head. And then the other thing I would say is surround yourself by people that believe in you more than you do sometimes too. For, for a couple of reasons, those people are going to push you and they're going to figure out ways to help you. But more importantly, I think that you will care so much that other people believe in you so much that you won't want to let them down. So you won't quit. So surround yourself with people that really believe in you more than you do at times.
0: I think that that is great advice. Another piece of advice that I, I think would be, you know, really helpful to share with entrepreneurs has to deal with fundraising process. Mm-hmm. All money is not the same money. So could you maybe give just a little bit of insight uh, in terms of things that entrepreneurs should be looking for out of the investors that they engage with?
1: Definitely. So we always say, you know, do as much due diligence on the investors as investors do on you. <laughs> First of all, make sure that you want to build a venture back company or a company that has even angel investment because there are companies and and, and we've seen it as well, there are companies that can achieve that high growth status and that scalability um, doing it through revenue. So you can still grow through revenue. Yes, it might take you a little bit longer or it might be, you know, it has a different set of challenges, but you can still do that. So the first question that you have to ask yourself is do I really want to build a company that requires infusion of capital? If you decide that you do, then the next step is to really figure out what you need the money for and how long that money is going to last you to accomplish what. And then based on what you're building, which has to do with the industry that you are um, going to be in, it has to do with the type of business model that you're building. It has to be with your personality as a founder. Then I would say you can start looking and building databases of investors everywhere, not just in your five mile radius, but you need to look at investors across the United States, because especially if you're in the middle of the country, which is where we're located, because a lot of fund managers are not located in the middle of the country. Luckily, we're seeing a lot more like Atento Capital and other funds surface in the middle of the country, but the majority are still aggregated in the coast. And so you need to build that database. And then you need to start reaching out to those Uh, before you start reaching out, then I would say do as much due diligence, you know, figure out what they invest in. Do they even come in as early as you are? So if you're pre-seed or seed, figure out, you know, if they come in that early, if you're pre-revenue, do they invest in pre-revenue or post-revenue? What size of checks do they write? Look at their portfolio companies and see who they've invested in. Um, if you know or happen to have a link to some of the founders they've invested in, reach out to them and figure out what this is. This has to do more a little bit with, you know, how are they? How do they operate? How do they deal with the founders? And when you do reach out to those founders, don't just ask them about the good times. Ask them about the bad times. Has there ever been a situation where you didn't reach revenue or you had to, you know, tell bad news to the to the investor? How did they react? So yeah, I mean, I I could write a book probably on all the things that you need to do before taking money from somebody else. But I think it's just super important on both ways, right? For the investor that's due to doing due diligence, and it's investing either their money, if they're angels, or somebody else's money, if they're fund managers, but also on the entrepreneur um, side. Because again, it's a relationship that it's going to last years, and it's very hard to separate if the dynamics are not in place from the get-go.
0: You did touch on uh, one point about, you know, there being fewer investors uh, in the middle of the country, Mm -hmm. but I I came across a pretty interesting data point uh, about a month ago, basically stating that the highest exit value for companies is in the middle of the country. So could you maybe speak to some of the benefits and advantages of building uh, a company in the South and Midwest?
1: Oh, 100%. Look, one of the reasons why Chris and I decided to stay here and help the uh, entrepreneurial community here is because we believe that that you can build it here. We've also seen that entrepreneurs who, you know, who do more with less tend to be more uh, just I don't want to say smarter, but, uh, you know, they, they just they take pride in what they build and they build companies and, you know, valuations tend to be not as crazy as you would see in, in, in some of the coastal areas, they become resourceful. And then also another thing that I don't think we talk enough about in the middle of the country is dependent on, on what type of company you're building. But if you're building a B2B or an enterprise company in core industries, you're, you will tend to be closer to the end user, to the customer, if you're in the middle of the country, as opposed to being on the coast. So again, it has to do a lot with the business model and the industry that you're operating. But I think that there are a lot of advantages of building your company in the middle of the country. In addition to what every economic developer out there will tell you, yes, low tax structure, low cost of doing business, all of those things are true as well. But I look at more at other components of building a company, you know, the supply chains, the economies of scale, the talent availability, all of that stuff that I think it's core um, in the early stages of building a company.
0: So, you know, obviously there have been uh, a ton of changes in the world that we're living in now um, with the COVID-19 situation. Um, and, you know, there have become, or there have been more and more resources, uh, that have been, you know, put out there for early stage companies, uh, including the CARES Act. Um, and so would love to, you know, hear your thoughts on some of those resources, um, and also any insight that you have that you might be able to share as well.
1: So there are a couple of, um, we actually just released a blog that we go into detail into Really there's a lot <laughs> in in that legislation that just passed but we go into the top three items that that entrepreneurs need to be aware of. number one is you can defer uh, some of your taxes um, to later years and you can also access one of the largest packet, stimulus package stimulus packages that that we've ever done which is at 350 for small businesses, which is um, a 350 billion dollar package. That basically provides loans and grants to small businesses and entrepreneurs and even give workers um, to be able to, uh, you know, survive during these harsh times. I do think it's important to know that if you're a venture backed company, there are still, we're still waiting on regulators to release whether or not venture backed companies are going to be eligible to apply for those. Because under, Current uh, normal circumstances, the SBA has an affiliate rule that often when lenders are looking at lending the money, um, they actually end up combining the portfolio companies of any particular venture fund. And instead of just counting your individual employees within your company, they actually take into consideration the entire portfolio uh, companies. So the National Venture Capital Association is looking into that. They actually send out a letter to Treasury um, explaining the problem that that will bring to venture-backed companies and whether or not they'll be able to access those funds. Um, On the opposite side, there are people that are saying that, you know, and and, and I'm not saying I agree with them, but um, there are people that are saying that we should... um, that venture backed startups shouldn't access those funds because they have investors and investors can deploy capital, um, a lot faster and that maybe those funds should be reserved for other smaller companies. Um, and, and that's to be debated and, and I'll let them do that. Um, but I, I will also say too, that even if venture backed, even if all of venture backed companies applied for that program, um, it, it first of all it's not going to be enough for anyone i don't think and second of all i think it's important to note that less than 1% of companies ever raise venture capital and so that comes that that's important for a lot of reasons but uh, particularly as we spoke before you know uh, entrepreneurs or spying entrepreneurs that fall in love with the concept of building a company because they think they're going to be able to raise funding super fast and, and, and it's going to be easy. Just know your odds, <laughs> particularly for if you're a woman or an entrepreneur of color, it, it, it's even harder uh, for you. And I'm just being real and you can just look at the data. But less than 2% of venture capital goes to women, and less than 1% of venture capital goes to entrepreneurs of color. All of that said, and taking it back to how that affects the CARES Act, for my colleagues that are maybe debating whether or not venture backed companies should access uh, those SBA loans, I will say even if all point zero five percent of venture backed startups access those funds, I think the maximum that you can get is ten ten thousand dollars or something like that. Um, it's still not going to be a big dent because less than one percent of companies of all companies in the United States are venture back. So I think that we need to take everyone into consideration because even if you're a venture back startup, you tend to be a small company in the early days. And at the end of the day, it's all about keeping people employed. That's what that legislation piece was about is to keep people employed. and so we need our venture back companies to also keep their um, staff. In place and continue to build our company.
0: This current situation is definitely hard, you know, on everyone across, you know, all pieces of the supply chain within the innovation ecosystem, for lack of a better term. Um, sure. You know, have been talking to, you know, some fund managers who, you know, are in the process of raising funds. They maybe haven't closed or hadn't closed before this COVID situation happened, and you know now they're having to push close dates back, which you know, then is, you know, pushing back how much, you know, capital they're looking to deploy into new companies, you know, or even, you know, add as follow on capital into current companies that they've invested in. Um, So I I think this is going to be a really interesting time. But I do think that, you know, the companies that emerge are really going to be the the, the truly special ones.
1: I I agree. I agree. Just figure out a way to make it work. Um, I will say as well, I think you're absolutely right. I think that LPs, some LPs are backing out of fund commitments. So it's important. We actually started a list of investment firms that are actually actively deploying, meaning they've already raised their, their fund and they have it in the bank. So it's not only just committed, but it's it's uh, <laughs> they have the funds to be able to deploy and make commitments. And then I would say too, um, it's most of our investors that have opted in to look at our deal flow that are institutional investor, meaning they're managing funds. I think they're still. Um, very much interested and, and active and, and doing what they need to do as much as they can. Where we have seen the shift has been with angel investors, because obviously they're investing their own money <laughs> and given the market situation and, and just the uncertainty with everything we've seen more and more angels kind of pull out a little bit or, you know, tell us that they are, um, they're still talking to companies and looking at companies, but they're being super honest and transparent with us and that they may not be as active when it comes to investing.
0: And so you know as, as a last question um, to, to wrap up, just wanted to understand if there was anything that you wanted to share with the rest of our uh, our, our following our listeners today.
1: Sure, build a company. <laughs> we need I strongly believe that the fastest way, to grow the innovation economy in our region in the middle of the country is through entrepreneurship. And I also believe that you know the entrepreneurs look very from today look very different than perhaps in the past. I think that unfortunately we've had a few, not a lot, but a few capitalists that have given capitalism a bad name. <laughs> but I also believe that we are in the best time to show that you know the entrepreneurs of today are building companies that are not just there to make a lot of profit but are also there to to do good in their communities so in addition to helping us uh, to supporting entrepreneurs or or building companies in addition to being additive in terms of helping us grow the innovation economy in our region i also think that it's helping us build a more inclusive economy or what I like to call capitalism 2.0 <laughs> that's coming through, which is you know, entrepreneurs that genuinely care about making a lot of money. So investors are still going to be happy about that. But then they're also in, um, equally uh, as purposeful and being additive to the, to the communities that they serve.
0: Amazing. Amazing. Thank you so, so much for your time, Erica. Thank you for all the insight uh, that you shared with our listeners. Going forward, we definitely uh, recommend all entrepreneurs who are listening to reach out to Erica and the team at Stitch Crew and apply. I know that we've seen a number of great companies come out of Stitch Crew and uh, we're looking forward to increasing our partnership with the, with the Stitch Crew team as well.
1: Thank you so much. We really appreciate you. We appreciate what you guys are doing. We need more mm-hmm. investors like you in the community and we're just incredibly grateful for for all that you're doing for the for the startup community.
0: Thank you everyone for listening to another episode of Be Atento. Uh, you can subscribe to the Be Attento podcast anywhere where podcasts are distributed. Um, please follow us on all social media. Uh, we are at Atento Capital. Uh, and, and be sure to visit us on our website as well uh, at atentocapital.com. Uh, we want to give a special thanks and a huge shout out to Rant Nine Productions uh, for helping us out once again uh, on another episode. And we look forward to you guys tuning in next episode.